Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Rosh Hashanah, daf Yudchet, page 18. Um, okay, we're still talking about these very serious experiences of life and death in the world. And the Gemara here opens, the daf opens with a discussion of exactly what it means for one to be sentenced, right? To have a decree upon them. So this is a question of whether a person's individual sentence, right, can that be, um, whether that can be changed, right? This is where we ended up yesterday in this question of, you know, can we do tshuva and everything can be forgiven and move on as if there is there never was a gzardin or not? And so this is a machloke tanaim, that's tanaihi, right? Ditanya, hayare b'meir omer, so Rabbi Meir takes the position, he says, two people can end up sick, right? Sick, taking to their beds, they're ill. And they have the same official thing, right? They have the same illness. Or two people can go up for judgment and they can get the same sentence. And then one comes down, meaning one comes down from his bed, meaning gets well, and the other does not. And this, likewise, one can be saved from death, and one is not saved. So the Gemara asks, Why did this one come down, meaning get better, and this one did not? This one was saved and this one was not. And so now the Gemara is going to give us exactly the kind of clear-cut answers that I always say we need to stay clear of because we don't really understand how God runs the world. But the Gemara um, sometimes presents it in a very, you know, very definitive uh, manner. So there you go, right? Meaning this one prayed and this one and this one and was answered and this one prayed and was not answered. So that's less definitive than I might have said, right? Meaning they both did the prayer. So shouldn't that get them saved? So why was this one answered and this one not answered? So this one answered a, a complete prayer, meaning a wholehearted, uh, deep in his heart kind of prayer. And so therefore was answered, meaning to be saved. And the other one, the other person prayed, but not not a full tefillah, not one that constituted his whole heart, so he did not get answered, meaning he did not get saved, and this is exactly where I say, like, so hard to know, what does it mean that somebody prayed with their whole heart, or the other one, that so many people who do play, pray with as much whole heart as they know how to pray, and are not answered, so we're going to leave aside the question of theodicy, and why this could be that God's judgment in the world does not line up as neatly as that, but that's what, you know, that's this position, Okay, Rabbi Lezer takes a different view. Rabbi Lezer Amar, Kan Kodem Gzardin, Kan Laachar Gzardin. Rabbi Lezer says, no, no, no. Once the Gzardin has been issued, prayer isn't going to make a difference either. Rather, the first guy prayed and was answered before the Gzardin was put into effect, or before it was issued, I guess. And then this, the second one prayed afterwards, so there was no turning back. Rabbi Yitzchak Amar, Yafetz Akal Adam, Ben Kodem Gzardin, Ben Lachar Gzardin. And Yitzchak disagrees with Rabbi Lazar and says, crying out to God, meaning in prayer, is going to be effective 
no matter when the Gazardine has come down. Meaning God can decide to rescind a, a punishing uh, sentence as long, you know, once one fries out, if God wants to. Uh, so then the Gemara asks, um, what about a community, right? This we've been talking now about individuals. Can you ever tear up the, the decree upon a community? So it's a verse from Jeremiah, from the Navi Yermiao, where it says, Jerusalem, it's addressed to Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness, the implication being right with the rest of the verse, really, so that you could be saved. And then also uh, it says, wash yourself with very strong soap. Um, and nonetheless, you're still going to hold on to this stain of sin, meaning it's not so clear when you can get rid of when you can get rid of the sin and when not when we're talking about a community as a whole. My love, Khan, Kodam Gzardin, Khan Lachar Gzardin. Are we going to say that this happens before the sentencing and after the sentencing? And the Gemara answers, no, lo, Lachar Gzardin. In both cases, both both the where it was where the sin was forgiven and where it was not, where both of them took place after Gzardin. Because here we have two different sentences that were accompanied or not accompanied each differently um, by an oath by God to not cancel the sentence, even in the case of Tshuva. So here we're talking very specifically about circumstances in the in the books of the prophets where that's already got a historical edge, right? As opposed to looking towards the future, what can you do? Okay, now I'm skipping a tiny bit. Is that true? I'm not skipping at all. I take that back. A long intro here of the names. So where do you see a case where God took a, a promise to not cancel the Gzardin and yet, you know, how do you know that you can't, that that can't happen? So God said he's not going to tear it up, but couldn't he decide to? So God says to the house of Eli, in the book of Shmuel, the beginning of the book of Shmuel, that he's going to purge the, I'm sorry, that the sins of Bnei Eli are going to remain with Bnei Eli forever. Meaning, so even when they come to offer sacrifices and so on, they're never going to rid, rid, rid themselves of this. And now we have an interesting comment on Rava and Abaye about this in particular. And this, I would say this Gemara has really been jumping around in terms of people and generations. So Rava's claim is, his position is that if you, that Bnei Eli cannot atone through Korbanot, right? But it could atone through Torah study. Right? This is a whole new wrinkle. If you think that tefillah is the be-all and end-all, no, no. According to Reva, teaching Torah, learning Torah, it's, it's not about teaching, it's about learning Torah, is going to be, um, it, it has more potential to atone for even the sin of Bnei Eli. Abaye, Amar, Chasadim. 
So Abayit agrees with Rava to, a, to an extent, but he says, forget about the sacrifices. Torah alone also is not going to do it. You need Torah and Gimilut Chasadim, acts of kindness. Rabbi of Abaye, me debate Eli Ka'atu. Now, what's interesting here is that Rabbi, not Rava, right? Rabbi and Abaye came from the house of Eli. How they knew this, that they had a, a some kind of document attesting to this is really fascinating, or at least a Mesorah. Right? They came from the house of Eli to begin with. Rabbi did the Asak B'Torah Chaya Arba'in Shnin. And Rabbi, apparently, engaged fully, wholeheartedly in Torah study, and he lived to be 40. And, but Abai, who did both, Torah learning and also acts of kindness, he lived to be 60. Now, nowadays, 60 is not so old. But then it, it really was, right? And that's the claim, that he managed to, to put his money where his mouth was in terms of his opinion, that by acting in this way, lo and behold, his life was not cut short. But there, but that was the issue, right? The idea that B'nai Eli were not going to live long. And this and this is where the Gemara goes next. And then with this, I'll turn it over to you, Yerdina. Tana Rabbanan, we have a breita. Mishpacha achat haita b'Yerushalayim, shayu mitah mitin b'nai Shemunah Shana. There's a family in Jerusalem, meaning Jerusalem of old, where the family members would die at the age of 18. And the point here is, you know, but Why? So they came to consult with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai about this fact. Maybe you're from the house of Eli. Maybe you've got this descendancy. You know, that he's your ancestor and this curse is upon you. I don't know if it's really fair to call it a curse, but it's certainly a promise that they're going to die young. So he tells them, go and engage in Torah learning, meaning make yourselves well-learned in Torah. I don't think it's about becoming good at it. It's it's about the process of engaging in Torah, iskuba Torah, and you will live. So they did exactly that, and then they lived. And then everybody would call that family the Rabbi Yochanan family because he really saved them. So this little uh, piece here about Rabbi and Abaye is actually a very, very famous sort of piece of biographical information about them. Um, so just keep this in the back of your head as we continue uh, to learn about them. As a doctor, I can tell you, I was interested in this story about, you know, this family where everybody died by age 18. I, of course, couldn't go to, I, of course, sort of went to a place of like, well, maybe there was something medical that was going on, right? That they just didn't know or understand um, but they seem to have come to some sort of solution through Torah learning. So th- those stories, that story is very intriguing to me. I'm going to jump ahead here to the new Mishnah that really shifts gears here. And we're going to move away from some of this heavy philosophical stuff we've been dealing with and now sort of get into some of the Kiddush HaChodesh or how was everybody taught or how did people find out when Rosh Chodesh was? And so the Mishnah teaches us the following. There were six months out of the year that messengers would basically go from the Beitin in Yerushalayim to other locations in Eretz Israel, to the Golad, to the Diaspora, to let them know when it was uh, when it was Rosh Chodesh. So Nisan, because we wanted to make sure people were observing Pesach at the right time. For, for Av, the month of Av, because of Tisha B'Av. Elo, uh, because of Rosh Hashanah. 
which generally always begins 30 days after Rosh Chodesh Elo. Um, for Tishrei, because then you sort of set all of the other holidays, Yom Kippur and, and Sukkot. So we want to make sure that one is being observed correctly. Now, one thing you may notice is, well, why is Shavuot not mentioned, right, which appears in Sivan? Because that's easy to calculate because of Sfirat Omer, right? It's exactly 49 days. Well, it's the 50th day after the 49 days of Sfira. So you don't really need to, you don't need to send messengers for that one. And finally, the Mishnah concludes, When the Beit HaMikdash was standing, they also would send messengers out for ER because they wanted to make sure that Pesach Katan, uh, remember that was sort of the second opportunity you would have on the 14th of ER. If let's say you were traveling or you were ritually impure, you were tummy and you could not bring the Korban Pesach correctly on Nisan, you had an opportunity to get it to do it again in, in ER, but again, it had to be done in the date of the 14th of ER. So, uh, so during the time of the Beit Hamikdash, they would send it out for um, for seven times. So, very interesting Mishnah. And again, as we mentioned before, Rosh Hashanah is going to deal this Masachat with a lot of issues of how Kiddush Hashodesh um, was actually done. And so, first, the Gemara starts off with the discussion about why is only the fast of Av mentioned, not the other and not the other fast. Um, and then um, the, we get this very interesting machlokas between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Akiva. Tanya ama Rabbi Shimon. So Rabbi Shimon uh, teaches in this b'risa that, what does he say? And he says there, were, there was four psukim uh, that Rabbi Akiva would explain. And I didn't explain the, te- the text exactly this, this way. And what this has to do with is these are a series of psukim uh, that appear in Zechariah. Um, and using other psukim, it's trying to figure out what fast days are these talking about. So first it says, right, it says, Som HaRavii, right, the fast of the fourth, okay? Zeti So this was the ninth of Tammuz when the city of Jerusalem was actually breached. Um, so on in the month, in the fourth month, on the ninth of the month, the famine was severe in the city and there was no bread for the people in the land and the city was breached. And you can see this is a passage from Yermiyahu chapter 52, verses six to seven. So why does the prophet call it the fourth? Because it's Thomas and that's the fourth month from Nisan. Soma Hamishi, Zachari also refers to this fast of the fifth, Zed Tishav Av. So this is to be the month of Av. Shaboni Srav Beit Elokeinu, right? This is when the Beit HaMikdash was burned. Why do they call it the fast of the fifth? Chamishi L'Chodeshim. It happens in the fifth month from Nisan. Soma Shivi, Zeshlo Shabbat Tishrei. The seventh fast that's referred to, the, the fast of the seventh. So this is on the third of Tishrei, which is right, Shabona Harag Gedalia Ben Achikam. This is the fast of Gedalia. Um, and then it goes into who killed him, Yishmael ben Netanya Hagu, Lulamdacha Shekulami Matam Shel Tzadikim, Kisrefat Beit Elokeinu. So this teaches us that the killing of a tzaddik is like the, the burning of the Beit HaMikdash itself. And so why is it called the seventh fast of the seventh? Because it's on the seventh month, which is Tishrei. And then finally, we have Som HaAsiri, um, which is the fast of the 10th. This is the 10th of Tebe. 
Shabosamach Melech Babel Al Yerushalayim, right? So this is the king of Babel laid siege to Yerushalayim. And here again, they quote a Pasukah from Yechazkel, chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. By Hidavar Hashem Elai Bashanah Tishit, Bachodesh Asiri. So in the ninth year, in the tenth month, Besar Lachodesh Lemor, in the tenth day, Ben Adam Kitablacha at Shem Hayom, at Etzam Hayom Azah, Samach Melech Babel El Yerushalayim. Right? And so why do we call it the 10th? Because again, it's the 10th month counting from Nisan. So then the question is, well, this event actually happened first. So why is this event talked about last? So the reason why all of these are written out of order, right? Really, the last thing that happened is mentioned first. And the first thing that happened is mentioned last in this teaching of Rabbi Shimon, it's because this also was a way of teaching the order of the months themselves. And this is sort of the answer that he gives. One other thing I want to point out here is, is that the fast day that they have here um, for Tammuz is on the uh, is on the ninth of Tammuz, right? Which is also interesting because that's not when we actually, uh, that's not actually when we, um, when we, when we do those fasts. Um, and so that's also like a little bit confusing here. But basically, this is how they want to explain this Pasuk in Zechariah. I didn't mention where the Pasuk was. Chapter 8, verse 19, which is mentioned at the at the top of the daf. Um, so that's one other thing. And I don't know if you saw an answer to that, that the, the date of Thomas, the ninth of Thomas, is, does not actually correspond to when we fast in Thomas. I did not. I feel like I used to know the reason for this. And I, I cannot find, I was thinking about it as I prepared, and I don't have it in my brain today. It's okay. really depressing well, maybe, to me. Maybe there's somebody else. Uh, maybe there's somebody else who knows who knows the answer to that. And if we find it by tomorrow, then we can, you know, we'll we'll update you. Yeah, we'll update you. Um, so that's you know, so that's Rabbi Shimon's. That's basically his understanding. Uh, uh, uh you know, this is how he understands it. Um, and so then finally we get to. So then he goes to Bani uh, and Sorry, that's Rabbi Akiva. And then Rabbi Shimon comes in and he says, I don't agree with it like this. And then he basically goes through the same Pasuk in Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 19, and he reverses everything. And he basically makes a go in chronological order, right? So he says, right? So, and again, he also has different dates here. So he says the 10th fast, this is the 5th of Tebet, where what? Shabobat Shmuala so this was the report reached the diaspora that the city had been uh, had been conquered. So this is a pasuk in Yechezkel chapter thirty three verse twenty one that in the twelfth year of exile, in the tenth month, and the fifth day, somebody got out of Yerushalayim. Somebody escaped and said the city was destroyed. Um, so the year you hear, sorry, the day you hear is like the day of the actual burning. But notice the date is different here. And he says, my statement is more convincing than his statement. And he says, once I put this into place, the first thing happens first. And the last thing happens last in this Pasuk and Zechariah. Whereas Rabbi Akiva's interpretation He's putting right the first thing last and the last thing first. He is counting in the order of the months and I'm counting in the order of the calamities, right? 
that they actually count. So very interesting take on the drusha. But what I think the point here is, is that, you know, some of our standard fast days that we had when it was closer to the time of the actual destruction, as you would say, Anne, it was getting sussed out, right? There were different versions sort of of like of what we were fasting for and when we were fasting for them. And so we see that here, you know, Tisha B'Av sort of, that was a standard, but we see even with Tevin and Tammuz, there's a little bit of difference about when those fast days actually took place. And so I think that's very interesting. And I think then finally, also, oh, yeah, sorry. So before I go on, yeah. I was just going to say that we're so used to the calendar being what we know it to be. Um, it, you know, even though we know that there was a time that it had to be implemented, right? But this is the time when it's being implemented. So, you know, to put ourselves back then is exactly why they're they're figuring it out. Right. So, uh, yeah, exactly. And I think because it's much, you know, these are things that for us are just, you know, part of the normal calendar. But it's interesting to see how it wasn't necessarily back then. Um, and finally, then the Gemara gets into an interesting discussion about something called Megillat Tani, which I just want to do a little bit of a who's who, what's what on. So Rav, Rabbi Hanina, Imri, Batlav, Megillat Tani. So Rav and Rabbi Hanina, right? So remember, these are Amurayim say the Megillat Tani has been, been nullified. Um, and so what was Megillat Tani? So Megillat Tani was basically a, a book uh, written in, in the, it probably started somehow during the time of the uh, of the Hashmonayim, um, and it literally means scroll of fasting, and it it listed thirty five days, which something happened to the Jewish people, like some sort of a miracle or something joyful, and basically these were days that it was celebrated, some sort of festival. You couldn't have public mourning on some of these days, and there was no public fasting in all of them. So it's sort of funny that it's called Megillat Tani. Like, why wouldn't it be called Megillat Simcha? But the idea is, is that these are days that you are not allowed to have any fasting on. So many of these, the dates that it describes go to the area, go to the time period of the era of the Hashmonayim. Um, some are even a little bit earlier. And you can find, you know, there are academics. Uh, one thing I read is that uh, Vered Noam, who's a very famous uh, Israeli female Talmudist, so that's why I want to mention her, has actually come out with like an academic, uh, scholarly version of Mikilat Tanit. Um, and uh, it's written in, in Mishneic Hebrew, basically. So that's what this book is. It's going to be mentioned many, many times in the Gemara. And here, what there's basically a question of is, do these, like, think about it, Rav and Rabbi Hanina are now writing in Babel, hundreds of years after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And so the question is, you know, sort of do these days of joy still take hold or are they nullified? And I think part of the reason that they can have this discussion is they're very far removed from many of these events. They're living in a very different historical time, right? Like they're living in the diaspora where everything sort of seems bad, sad, you know, not good. And so to sort of have fixed into the calendar these days where we sort of say you have to celebrate, you have to this, just doesn't seem sort of uh, necessarily uh, appropriate to them, right? And, you know, then we have the opinion of Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, where they say, lo batlav megin latanit, it hasn't been nullified. Um, and, you know, they each give a reason uh, for why, right? Rabbi Rav and Rabbi Hanina say, that when there's peace in the world, those dates are actually times of joy and gladness. Ain shalom, but when they aren't, they can be days of fasting. And 
And so those days mentioned Megillat need are also like those days of fasting. In other words, they're living in a time which is more of a time of so, not a time of, of Sasson and Simcha. Whereas Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yeshua ben, ben Levi come and they say, no, honey, who, who, the lean who, Rahmana Bibinyan, Beit Hamidash, Avahanach, Takaime Kami. Right? It was on those fast days mentioned in, in, in the Tanakh itself, right, that Hashem makes contingent the building of the temple. But these days that are listed in Megillat Tanit, they remain as they are. And, and these are still days that we don't fast on. So this is just a very interesting discussion. And then just to point out at the end, you know, when we learned Masach Shabbat, that was where we said is most of the discussion about Hanukkah. But here we also have in this page a reference to how Hanukkah was celebrated. And it's interesting. It tells the story about Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua that they made a fast day on Hanukkah. They didn't want to observe it. But it also shows you that some of these holidays took time to sort of become part of the culture. And so it's clear that there were groups of people who didn't necessarily treat Hanukkah the way that we do today. That's our daft discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.